me in your Bibles to the first chapter of John's Gospel. Our text this morning will be verses 12 and 13, but to put this in its context, I'd like to read from the first verse. So, John's verse. Hear now God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There came a man sent from God, his name was John. The same came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, even the light which lighteth every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and they that were his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And thus far the reading of God's word. During this month of June, I've been striving to summarize the overall teaching of the Bible, the cover-to-cover issue that is raised by the Bible in single sentences that we can then elaborate upon as we explain further of the biblical message to those who may not be familiar with it, who may not as yet believe it. We've already to this point considered the theme that there's a new king here, and this is what the Bible wants to put across to us, that Christ has come as our king. We are either going to be rebels against the king or we're going to become sons of the king. We're going to serve him. We saw last week that the, another way the Bible can be summarized is by saying that the ransom has been paid. There is a debt that's been incurred because of our sin. We are guilty before God and we owe the penalty for our sin and we are slaves, captives of Satan because of sin. And yet Christ has come and has paid the ransom price, has set us free from the guilt and the power of sin. This morning I wish to take a different tack. I wish to approach the whole teaching of the Bible from a different angle. There are different ways in which we can put the message across, and one of the ways, perhaps one of the kindest, one of the most um, heart-rending ways in which we can summarize the Bible is to say God has adopted us as his children. To get the theme, I'm going to ask you, who are the children of God? We need to stop and consider that. That's a, that's a phrase that's used a lot. It's, it's used by Christians. It's used by non-Christian religions. It's used by non-Christians. We hear this expression many times. Children of God. Well, just who are the children of God? There is a cultic group, perhaps you're aware of them, the children of God, that take that as their name and restrict its title to themselves. They are the children of God, and everyone who is like them belongs to the children of God, but others are outside of that group. So you hear a very restrictive use of that term. But the very opposite is often found, in fact, I think more often found, the very opposite view that the children of God is not restricted to a select group, but is a title that belongs to all of us. 
and belongs to all of us by natural right. Belongs to all of us whether we're aware of it or not. We are all children of God. Liberal theology makes that the central plank of its teaching. Modernistic theology, which became really uh, popular in this country at the turn of this present century, the beginning of the 20th century, all that was building up in the late 19th century, and a century before that in Germany, and has been spreading ever since. And uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, whether in Germany or here, just sees a variation, a different strain, a different uh, mutation of the same line of thought from uh, decade to decade, but it's still with us. Liberal theology teaches we are all the children of God. God is our Father. To put it very simply, liberal theology preaches the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. All men are brothers because they are all sons or daughters of God, who is their Father. And the good news is to proclaim this, to let people who are not aware of the fact that they are children of God come to learn that truth. It's as though they have this great privilege, but they just haven't been informed of it. They are not cognizant of it. And so that's what the preaching of the gospel is, to come and tell people, God, God is your Father. Didn't you know that? Well, what I find as a student of comparative religion, what I find uh, immensely strange about this is that this is precisely the teaching of Eastern mysticism, too. That we are all the children of God. Or... God flows through all of us. Or we are all just a chip off of the original block of reality. We are all part and parcel of the family of God. There's no great distinction between God, the other, the transcendent one, the creator, and man. There's no great gulf between those two. There's just a continuum of being between God and man and everything else for that matter. Eastern mysticism teaches we are all children of God. We are all spliced off of the block of reality that is God. We all belong to the same family. We are all one. And liberty, Christian liberal theology has taken that theme and has simply baptized it with Christian terminology. Liberal theology would have us believe we belong to one another because we are all in the same family, and it's a divine family. We are all children of God. And so it comes as a great slap in the face. It comes as a cold water dampening our enthusiasm when I tell you that the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says not one of us is a child of God. What? How could anyone be so cruel as to suggest that we aren't children of God? Didn't God make all of us? That's a Christian theme, and if God made us all, he's the father of us all, correct? Well, I suppose in one sense you could say that. The Bible never puts it that way. But there's a truth to the fact that we are the offspring of God because he made us. But in the most significant familial sense of being a son or daughter of God, of belonging to the children of God, the Bible never says men are children of God by natural generation. As a matter of natural fact, to be automatically assumed, we are not, as a matter of fact, children of God. We are born 
the very opposite. We are born outside the family of God. We are born rebels against God. God is angry with us. God has put us aside. This all begins at the, uh, at the very beginning, the biblical story, where the Bible tells us that by sinning, Adam lost divine sonship. Adam, of course, was made directly by God. He was a son of God. As the creator, God was a father to Adam. Look at Genesis, the fifth chapter, verses 1 to 5. You'll see an interesting way of putting Adam's relationship to God. Genesis 5, beginning at the first verse. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son, now listen, and begat a son in his own life after his image and called his name Seth. In the days of Adam, after he begat Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, we can go through this genealogy, and you'll find the same sort of implication, the same sort of teaching coming across, that Adam bore a son in his likeness, and his son bore a son in his likeness. Well, after whose likeness was Adam? Who was Adam's father? Well, the Bible tells us not only at the very beginning in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, but tells us here in Genesis 5 as well, that God created man in his likeness. Adam was made after the likeness of God himself. Adam was intended to be the very son of God. But what happened? Adam didn't act like a son. Adam decided he would act like his own little king, his own little God. He not wanted to be like God, he wanted to be God. And how did he do that? Is it because Adam wanted to go out and make another universe for himself? Am I making any kind of ridiculous claim like that? No. Adam aspired to the prerogatives of God, maybe not to the power, to what we may call the metaphysical attributes of God. He aspired to be in the same ethical position as God. He decided that he would determine what is right and wrong, that his experience would be the foundation of truth for him, and he need not follow the word of God. And so in this sense, he rebelled against God. He did not accept his place as a son. He tried to take the authority of the father. Adam no longer wished to be in that subservient position. At least ethically, he didn't. He wanted to determine for himself what was going to be right and wrong. And so Adam, of course, with the help of his wife Eve, sinned against God. And the day that he sinned against God, he was put outside the family of God. He no longer had any inheritance. He was an heir of life. He now had come under the power of death. He had become part of what we now call the world. He was under the sway of Satan. And so rebellion brought separation from his heavenly father. And not just separation in some geographical and impersonal sense, but a separation that implied enmity. There was now hostility. God was angry with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, we see the very beginning of what is a crucial biblical theme. 
the beginning of this theme of two kinds of seed among men now. Two kinds of seed, two family lines, if you will. In Genesis 3.15, we break into the discourse where God is speaking with Satan and cursing him. And as part of this curse, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Often when preachers preach in Genesis 3.15, the emphasis is upon this mutual bruising, the bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel. And uh, that's a very important theme, one that we could look at. But today I want us to focus on the, what comes before that. I will put enmity between thy seed, speaking to Satan, and the seed of the woman. The woman here representing the head of the line of those who will belong to God. There's one particular seed of the woman that is coming who will work the work of redemption, who will effect reconciliation to God, who will crush the one who brought separation between God and man. But it's fascinating to notice, not only does she have a seed, but Satan has a seed now. And God's not speaking of all the little serpents that will be born now throughout history. He's talking about human beings who will belong to the seed of who will be quite literally sons of Satan. You say, well, who is that? I mean, that must be some cultic group, some anti-religious, destructive, terribly immoral group, the sons of Satan. Well, I've got news for you. That's you and me. That's all of us. We are all born, according to the Bible, we are all born as children of Satan, as part of the seed of the serpent. You say, well, is that what the Bible really teaches? Yes, it does. Turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read the first three verses there. Paul says, And you, when you were dead through your trespasses and sins, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, this is not very flattering. Paul says, you were once under the power of Satan. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan controlled your life. You belong to him. And notice the description in verse um, Three, among whom we also once lived in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We are sons of Satan, sons of disobedience, verse 2 puts it, and therefore by nature children of wrath. Does the Bible teach the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man? No. Far from it. It says, by nature we are children of wrath. We are not by nature children of God. We do not naturally belong to God. We do not automatically have a relationship that is positive and saving and blessed. No, by nature God is angry with us. By nature God says, I have nothing to do with you. By nature you are outside of my family. 
And so we all come into this world as sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. In John the 8th chapter, Jesus turned on his opponents and as they were ridiculing him for his parentage, he said, well, you are of your father, the devil. What? Obviously, he was talking to some religious cult, you think. Of your father, the devil? No, as a matter of fact, you need to understand the context. He was talking to the religious leaders of his day. He was talking to the most religious people around, at least by reputation. In that society, people looked to the scribes and the Pharisees and saw in them the epitome of religiosity, the epitome of morality, the epitome of one are ones who must have a right relationship with God. And Jesus said to the most up, most religious people of his day, you're of your father, the devil. God's not your father, Jesus said. If he were, you would believe me, because I came forth from God. We could look at that in more depth. But the point now is that Jesus says, you were born of Satan. You're sons of disobedience. You, by nature, are children of wrath. You are liars and murderers, and your father's will it is to do, because he is a liar, and he was a murderer from the beginning. In 1 John 3, 8, we read, He who does sin is of the devil. And so ask yourself, have you ever sinned? Anyone want to stand up here and make the most amazing religious confession ever to be heard? I have never once in my whole life sinned. The Bible says if you sin, you're of the devil. Sin doesn't come from God. If you're a child of God, you don't sin. In fact, John emphasizes that, and you may want to ask about that later in our question and answer period. He says, if his sin, you don't sin. If you belong to God, if you're a child of God, you don't sin. But if you do sin, if that's characteristic of your life, you're of the devil. So the Bible says we are not children of God. By sinning, Adam lost divine sonship, and we have now all been born children of Satan. But the biblical message is God adopts unworthy, wretched children like us to be his own. God adopts them. Oh, they aren't born into his family. No one comes into the family of God by natural right. God only has children now through adoption. The amazing thing about the biblical teaching on adoption is that it is so contrary to what was known in the ancient world as the practice of adoption. The Roman practice of adoption was customarily this. A wealthy man, at least a man with some kind of an estate, goes through his life, and it turns out as he gets toward the end of his life, he has no heir. He's one that he's going to pass his property to. No one that's going to continue his family name. And so what he does is he searches about for someone, a young adult, who has proven himself to be a worthy candidate for adoption has proven by his moral character, by his uh, accomplishments in life, by the nobility of his, uh, of his character, his person, that he would be a good son. And so here is this, uh, this Roman wealthy person going around looking for a noble son to pass his name and his inheritance to. Is that what God does? Is God looking for someone to inherit his name and his property? 
And then he looks down among the sons of men and he says, now where is someone who's really doing a good job? Where is someone who has uh, achieved some religious standing that I find worthwhile? Where is someone who is so close to being like me, I'd want to pass my name on to this person? No, he doesn't. For you see, when God looks down from heaven among the children of men, all he sees is sons of disobedience. All he can see down there are the children of wrath. He sees men in rebellion against him, men wallowing in their sin, men who do not love one another, men who do not love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. He doesn't see any worthy children down there. And the biblical message is, he nevertheless, by electing grace, adopts some to be his own. He takes them out of the world and says, you'll become my child. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3.1 What manner of love? Where do you find love like this? Not in the Roman world. Not in the Roman practice of adoption. You don't find love like this in all the world. Such love that God says, I'll call you my children. When you really belong to another family. When by character and accomplishment, you should really be apart from me from all eternity. God adopts us as his own. Look at Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. We'll see how God brings this about. In Galatians 4, we read at the fourth verse. And when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Do you see what God did? God said, I have no other children, and so I'll send my own son to redeem people that I can adopt. I'll send my son. And notice, his son, this is, this is one of the most beautiful poetic verses of the New Testament, his son is born of a woman. His son, Christ, the son of God, God the very son, is born now of a woman, becomes a man, lives under the law, that he might redeem those who are cursed by the law, that he might set them free. We talked about that last week, but what we didn't bring into the picture, and I now want to incorporate, is that when Christ sets us free, we're not only liberated so that we're not under the guilt and power of sin, but we have been redeemed that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ didn't come into this world simply to have a legal relationship with men. He came into this world to bring men into his own family. This is a very precious teaching in God's word. In Romans 8.17, we find out that we become heirs of God only by becoming joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Christ came into this world to redeem us and to bring us into his family. Christ came into this world saying, I'm the only one who has the right to receive from God the Father the inheritance. But I want you to share it. I want you to become my brother. I want you to come into our family and be a joint heir and stand with me and receive from God the salvation 
that he is offering. In Romans 8.15, Paul tells us that God has sent the spirit of adoption into our hearts. Romans 8.15, For you received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Who has the right to begin their prayers, our Heavenly Father? Only those who have the spirit of adoption in their hearts. They're the only ones who can say, Abba. They're the only ones who can say, Father, listen to me, I'm your child. Those who don't have the spirit of adoption have the spirit of bondage and fear and condemnation in their hearts. But God has sent the spirit of adoption into our hearts to give us a new heart, to give us a new spiritual life, that we might be born again. And this spirit of adoption is called in Galatians 4, 6, the spirit of his son. Christ the son makes us sons and daughters of God by giving the spirit of the son as the spirit of adoption to us. Let's return to our scripture reading for this morning then. John 1, verses 12 and 13, and I trust you can now appreciate what John is trying to communicate to us. In verse 11, John, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, He came into his, unto his own, and they that were his own received him not. Christ came into this world, and his own people would have nothing to do with him, rejected him, and crucified him, saying, We have no king but Caesar. John, remembering all this and summarizing it at the beginning of his gospel, says, He came to his own. He offered himself to them, and they said, No deal. We want nothing to do with you. There you have those that Jesus called sons of Satan, of their father the devil, lying against him and murdering him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him... To them gave he, and I want to emphasize this word, the right. Could be translated the authorization, the authority. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John speaks of a legal right of becoming a son here the right to become adopted into a new family. And he says, as many as received him, they received authorization from the Most High God. They received a legal right to become part of his family. And John emphasizes in verse 13, this is not a natural right. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It says, nobody has this right to be a child of God because of born, how he was born, to whom he was born. This is not of blood. There's a real sense in which God has no grandchildren, right? You may have been born into a Christian family, but that doesn't make you a child of God. You may have been born in America, but that doesn't make you a child of God. You may have been born into a family of great privilege or political power or esteem, but that doesn't make you a child of God because you cannot be born of blood into this family. You say, well, okay, that's right. No one has some kind of 
natural physical right to become a child of God, but certainly we can make the right kinds of choices. We can do the right kinds of things. We can become the right kind of people. Then we'll be children of God. And John says, no, for it's not of the will of the flesh. Man cannot will himself into the family of God. Man cannot accomplish enough to become a child of God. For all of your striving, you will never be authorized to be a child. There's only one way to come into God's family, and that's by his will. We must be born of the will of God. Look at Ephesians 1.5. Keep your finger in John 1, but you really must cross-reference Ephesians 1.5 to understand this. For there we read, Having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself. Listen. According to the good pleasure of his will. God's the adopting agent. And he chooses who will belong to him. It's according to his good pleasure that we are brought into his family. And so you see, I don't preach to you today this gospel that says you all have the chance to become sons of God if you just do the right thing, if you just make the right decisions, if you will but will it, you'll become a child of God. The Bible says no way. You'll only become a child of God if it's by his good pleasure. If he chosen you for his family, those of us who belong to the family of God could never say, if we really understood these words, could never say, I am a Christian. I am part of the family of God because I made the right choice. No, you didn't. You haven't the power in you to make the right choice. You haven't the godliness in you to make the right choice. You haven't the direction to make the right choice. You are lost in sin. There is no hope for you because you are a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. You have your father the devil. And only if the heavenly father says, I'm going to take this one who belongs to the devil and by my will make him my own, will you then choose rightly? John tells us at the very outset of his gospel, none of us who belong to Jesus Christ did this by our own will, but only by the will of God. But when God wills to make you his child, what will you do? Verse 12 tells us, As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe. If God has chosen you to be part of his family, then you're going to receive his son, Jesus Christ, gladly, eagerly, consistently, and eternally. Receive Jesus Christ as your own, and believe on his name as the only hope in heaven and earth for your salvation. How will that be accomplished? The Bible says in Romans 8, through the spirit of adoption. If the spirit of God's son, the spirit of adoption, comes into our hearts, he'll change our minds. He'll change our wills. He'll change our direction. He'll give us new life. We'll be born again, as it were. And then we will receive his son and believe on him and live our lives for his glory. And from that point, and only from that point, will we properly be able to call upon God as our Father? You remember the precious words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 32? He says, you call on God as your Father, knowing that he takes care of you. Do you want to have the gift to God where you can say, Father, I need you today. Father, meet my needs. Father, give me my daily bread. Father, watch out for me. Father, keep me safe. I trust all of you, in one way or another, have had a relationship 
with a father or a mother or both, where you felt that you could go to them in need and call on them. We all want to believe we can do that with God, too, but we can't, unless we have received his Son and believe on his name. And then, of course, we can cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. And more than that, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that God has sent his angels into this world as ministering spirits to take care of those who will be heirs of salvation. If you want to inherit from God salvation and an eternal life with him, then you must first receive authorization and right to be a child of God. You must be a dot family. Now all of you need this merciful change of relationship. You all need to stop being sons of disobedience and become sons and daughters of God. Not one of us. Preachers, people brought up in Christian families, those who have done a lot of work for the kingdom, not one of us will be able to have that relationship on the basis of our own will or natural accomplishment. We must not look upon our creaturehood as some kind of a guarantee that we belong to the family of God. And Galatians 3 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. I wonder if you have that faith today. You know, there's one person in this audience who understands this message about adoption. It's my daughter, Wendy. Wendy knows that uh, she didn't have any natural and physical right to be part of our family. Wendy knows that we chose her to belong to us. We had, But you see, most of us have not had Wendy's experience. Most of us just assume family relationships. We take them for granted. I hope today you're not taking for granted that you belong to the family of God. That can't be taken for granted. It can only be known by faith through a change of relationship so that no longer are you enemies of God, but you are sons and daughters, adopted by God, unworthy to be sure, but adopted by his mercy and according to his will into his family. Let's pray. We confess, Father, that we are not your children by any natural right and that our creaturehood does not secure a place with you that we should receive from you blessing and salvation. Indeed, what we should receive from your hand by natural right and by our own works is wrath and curse, alienation, separation, and condemnation. But this morning we do call on you, and we call you Father. And we rejoice in that, the manner of love that you have shown to us, that we could be called your children, and that we can cry, Abba, Father, to you. Oh, we understand now that this comes only through your adopting love, only because you've taken us out of one family and chosen us to yourself, only because you have placed within our hearts through your spirit of adoption a love and faith, a trust in Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we have assurance that we will be joint heirs of salvation that we will receive from your hand eternal blessing, eternal life. Indeed, that we will live with you forever because our older brother, your very son, 
the Son of God has laid down his life for us, has redeemed us, and even more, his spirit into our hearts to call us to himself. We give you all the praise today that we can stand before you as children. Thank you for adopting us. We trust that you will continue that loving family care and teach us how to live as sons and daughters of the Most High, that we would give true credit to our family, that we would show who our family is, who our Father is, in the way that we live. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.